When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast, the one and only podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm in McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. As we like to say, beware of cheap imitations because uh, there's nothing quite like the real thing. Uh, Today, we'll be talking uh, international football in terms of European Super League proposals. Uh, Ansu Fati at Barcelona and his latest contract situation. Uh, Asking the question, uh, which is being asked internally at Manchester United, if they are getting value for the money that they have spent in the transfer market, as well as, surprisingly, or maybe not considering his playing stats, um, the clamour for Yves Basuma's signature from Brighton and Hove Albion amongst England's Champions League clubs. And of course, it being the second podcast of the week, the Donkey Award. Donkey! <laughs> That's as we know you, um, you have some information on the latest with Ansu Fati, who is, of course, the rising star at Barcelona. And uh, there are also some interesting things happening in La Liga with regards to um, the uh, payment structure, uh, which has been uh, renegotiated for each of the clubs in La Liga uh, in terms of what they can spend in wages on their players. Well, not really renegotiated, handed down by La Liga um, and, <laughs> and, and quite aggressively handed down and, and creating a massive imbalance in the division um, because Real Madrid now have over a third of the uh, the, the squad spending limit, as the, the Spanish league calls it, um, which they're allowed to use on recruiting players and paying coaches and staff and paying for their uh, their youth systems, etc. So that the 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 total um spending limit for the division is two point two seven billion euros and Real Madrid have gone up from four hundred and sixty eight to seven hundred and thirty nine. Um biggest increase anyone else has had is Espanol, just thirty two and a half million up. Um most noticeable decrease is the one handed down to Barcelona, which went beyond the expectations. Um, were, uh, the discussion through a summer where they were obviously struggling to hold key players and eventually had to sacrifice Lionel Messi was that they would move down to a salary limit of somewhere in the region of 130 million, 140 million euros. They were actually cut from 382 to 97 million euros. Um, it's a three, almost a three-quarter reduction over what had been a reduced salary cap the previous season. They're just seventh in, in La Liga in terms of spending limit. Um, less than clubs like Villarreal, Atletico and uh, and Sevilla now and, and Real Sociedad, remarkably. Um, in this context, I, I think the renegotiation of Ansu Fati's contract becomes even more interesting than it had been. Ansu Fati is a, uh, a talent that we flagged up on the podcast years ago, um, talked about the battle Barcelona had to keep him there um, as he was turning 16 and an interest uh, from leading European clubs at the time and whether Barcelona were going to be able to get him onto a, a professional contract. Um, talked also about efforts from uh, clubs uh, in England, Manchester United most noticeably, to see if they could recruit Ansu from Barcelona um, the summer before last. Uh, a, a substantial offer made 
uh, verbal offer made to Barcelona by Manchester United, um, kind of exploring what the limits of Barcelona's financial difficulties were at the time and whether they'd be prepared to sacrifice a talent like that. Um, confirmed by the ex-president of the club, Josep Maria Bartomeu, that they'd received that offer and they'd turned it down because they considered him untransferable. And, and his importance to the club is, has been sustained through a change of, of presidency in that when Messi left for Paris Saint-Germain, his iconic number 10 shirt was handed to Ansu, who's still just 18 years of age. Um, so a massive um, vote of intent on Barcelona's part in, in a player who, who people think does have the technical ability to, to merit that number 10 shirt in the Barcelona system. And also um, something we talked about a couple of years ago, extremely popular in social media, has that commercial appeal, which is which is important to clubs of that dimension and clubs who who have financial issues such as Barcelona have, um, and it and it all rolls together into what will happen with this contract negotiation. He's on a very low salary at present. Um, my information is that his current salary is just one point two million euros gross on a contract that was signed in two thousand nineteen and which runs until the end of the season now. Barcelona hold an option to extend that deal for two more years um, on similar terms. And they can do that, I'm told, by making a payment of just €52,000 to the player in order to extend the deal. But guidance I have is that they don't want to do that. They don't want to use the option because clearly you give the number 10 shirt to an 18-year-old and you build them into the figure they've built them into, you have to reward him financially for that status and uh, and just trying to run through the existing contract would be problematic. Uh, Ansu wants to stay at Barcelona. He wants to, to continue his career there. He wants to use this opportunity um, of, his, of his importance within the squad to, to develop himself. But talking to people who are involved in the, the negotiations over a new deal, they are quite careful to emphasize that although the player wants to stay and although the instructions are, get me a new deal, um, obviously a, a, a significantly improved um, financial package, they're saying it's not impossible that he might choose to move elsewhere should the negotiations go in the wrong direction. And I think that's why these, these squad spending limits are, are important here because they are boxing Barcelona in, in terms of what they can do to persuade players of Ansu's ability that, um, that this is the right place to be and, and they don't have to take too much of a financial hit in order to continue playing at Barcelona. Um, you have it in the context of what's happening with Ronald Koeman, um, we flagged up a couple of weeks ago that Barcelona were looking at alternative candidates. Um, Ian, you explained that Jurgen Love, the, the former Germany coach, was one of those. Obviously, someone who could be hired without um, paying compensation. Results have not improved since then. Um, they had a, a very uh, debilitating 3-0 defeat in the Champions League to Benfica in midweek. They've now lost both of their opening Champions League games, not scored a goal, goal difference of minus six. Um, they're not looking in a good place to go through to the next round of the Champions League, which obviously has financial repercussions of its own. So this has been talked about, Ansu Fati's renegotiation has been talked about as a kind of, Barcelona don't have to worry about this. He will sign, he wants to stay. It's just a matter of time until they, they come to a resolution. I'm not sure it's as, as clear cut as that and and I think there will be a some interesting discussions going on between the parties, um, and those are due uh, the next round of discussions to take place next week. Ansu Fati must be looking at his contemporaries or peers, if you like, in Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe, and thinking to himself, "Well, they're currently earning." 10 times 
and 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 more than that than than he is right now. And okay, so maybe the money's not as important to him at this point in his career and career development is his priority. But at the same time, everyone knows their value. And clearly his value is not being realised at this moment in time under his current terms at Barcelona. However, um, Barcelona is a club which has spiralled into a crisis situation regarding their debt, 1.15 billion euros. Uh, They've lost Messi. Uh, Antoine Griezmann's gone on loan back to Atletico Madrid. The dream team that Bartomeu was trying to build is effectively being dismantled and they're now depending upon um, either bargain buys, free transfers and youth players. If you were Ansu Fati, Duncan, would you be looking around and thinking, maybe this isn't the place for me to be because it is or does feel like it's chaotic and there's no sign of it getting better soon. Yeah, I think I think that is an important element here. It's it's you can say to a player, you are central to a rebuild. We want to we want to restart amongst um the talented youth that the our academy produces and go back to playing the kind of football that we are have been famous for and the kind of football that our spectators demand. And, um, you know, Messi leaving to go elsewhere kind of accelerates the, the career path. It opens up more opportunities for someone who who had very capably broken into the team before he, he suffered an injury last season. So he, you know, he, he did it with a, a strong Barcelona squad with those players you mentioned being in place and with those big investments in, in forwards such as Griezmann. Uh, Usman Dembele fighting them for position and, and gaining it. So you know, he's established his, his playing quality, but if they aren't competitive and you know the, the way they're, they're, the results are going at present, there is a risk they're not in Champions League next season. Um, so that's a factor too. If you, you're that kind of player, you expect to be playing Champions League. Um, there is, of course, the promise from Laporta that uh, the the finances will be resolved, that they'll be uh, refinanced in a way that they can spend money on top players next summer and, and the squad will be restructured into one that can compete at the top end of, of European football. But Laporta made those promises in the election campaign past and this summer was supposed to be one where the finances were sorted out and big spending and Erling Haaland, you, you mentioned that was one of um, Laporta's stated targets to bring a player like Erling Haaland in. Um, and it didn't happen. Instead, you have basically the new um, directorship of, of Barcelona saying, actually, the numbers were a lot worse than we expected. We, we did our calculations. We thought they were going to be bad. They were horrendous. Um, and on top of that, La Liga stopped us from retaining Messi, even though we managed to agree a deal with him where he would uh, delay his salary payments down the line um, in order to to make it easier to work on the books. Now, there's an argument to be had as, as to, uh, and La Liga will make this argument, as to how genuine that excuse was, that reasoning was from Laporta. Actually, perhaps they made the decision that they needed Messi out um, that they didn't want those numbers um, weighing on their books going forward and that they they wanted uh, to restructure with younger, faster players and, and to get back to playing the Barcelona style, it was actually expedient to let Messi leave. It's, it's a kind of irrelevant argument now in the sense that it's done. They've gone down that route. And if you're Ansu Fati, if you're Pedri, if you're one of the other um, young talents in the Barcelona squad, you there will come a point where you're saying, actually, what level of club am, am I at now? And those La Liga salary limits that were published this week are pretty telling because that is black and white. Um, the league, the Spanish league has cut 
an already reduced budget by three quarters for this season and a club like Real Sociedad, a club like Athletic Bilbao have more money to spend on players than my club does now. Um, so to overcome that, Barcelona have to get something right and and very right in their organisational side, in their coaching side. And, and that's something they haven't done for a while now. It just seems almost surreal that Barcelona, a club who dominated uh, La Liga and European football for uh, seven, eight years uh, under Guardiola and then Luis Enrique, could be find or could just simply find themselves in this situation whereby they are non competitive, both in a sporting sense and a financial sense. Um, and as you say, uh, with these new rules with regards to salary spending, they are behind much, much smaller clubs and therefore limited as to what they can pay in wages, which of course means that recruitment, regardless if they had the money to spend on transfer fees, becomes so much harder. Yeah, and it's recruitment that got them into these problems in the first place, recruitment and paying overpaying players. Uh, who were already part of their squad or were coming into their squad, such as Anton Griezmann, um, such as Jordi Alba, um, Sergio Roberto, giving them salaries where it's effectively impossible um, to move them out or they have to take massive hits to move them out as they did with Griezmann, allowing him to join a rival on loan for two seasons um, was a compulsory option to buy. They wanted to get Jean-Felix in exchange um, for Griezmann from Atletico. Atletico just said, no, we know Jean-Felix wants to leave and expects to leave, but we're not going to let that happen. If you want Griezmann off the books, you have to give him to us um, without an exchange of, of player and without money until two years down the line as a, as a transfer fee. Um, it's If you look on the bright side, if you look on the optimistic side, you could make an argument that Barcelona have been so bad at recruitment um, for several years now, and most of their big money deals have ended up being millstones for them. Maybe it's a good thing that they have to depend on the academy for a while. Maybe it's good that, that players like Ansu Fati and Pedri are forced into the team and get more playing time than they might have done in a previous era where the the default um, solution for appeasing the supporters and winning elections at Barcelona was to go out and make a 100 million euro plus signing. Maybe they get back to uh, the essence of Barcelona and the things that, uh, that help push them to the top because they're forced to concentrate on the resources they have for a while. But, you know, again, that, that's quite a big maybe. Feels a little bit like Arsenal um, and the infamous or famous Buck Four, um, who held the team together, <laughs> and when that started to disintegrate, then um, so did Arsene Wenger's um, domination in terms of uh, challenging for Premier League titles in England. Some positive news, Duncan, with regards to uh, UEFA dropping their legal case against Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus, the only three teams who continued uh, to uh, contest and promote the possibility of the European Super League uh, in the last few days. Um, now, that may be because they've got an alternative plan and they want to bring everyone back into the fold with regards to uh, distribution of earnings, uh, TV rights, money, etc., uh, on the basis that without those clubs, then any Champions League in the future would be greatly devalued. Um, with the whole controversy over... Uh, FIFA proposing a World Cup every two years as well. Um, where does this leave the state of football with the calendar as well as the finances 
and the competitiveness of uh, the, let's just say, the, pr the premier uh, competitions, both in international and in club football. I think this this UEFA move is is a fascinating one, and it and it tees up a lot of further um, court discussion over whether the principle of top European clubs stepping away from UEFA to the to the extent that they don't want UEFA to organise competitions, they want UEFA to regulate the competition, to to apply the rules, but not to be the, the the body that decides how the competitions are created and the body that takes a large chunk of the revenue from that competition and keeps it to itself to redistribute in ways that it feels are appropriate. Um, you so, so basically, basically like a, a club um, situation in in the different in the top European leagues where every every club's a stakeholder rather than being administered by the headline association yeah that and and people within the super league camp who are conducting this legal case may draw a parallel between the premier league breaking away from uh, the rest of the football league and the fa remaining as the regulator but the clubs being the shareholders in the premier league and deciding how the premier league is organized as a business entity so that they say, why can't that happen again? Now that football is is more global, it's the, there are top clubs in Europe where it makes sense to have them playing each other on a more frequent basis because that's what the audience wants is their argument, um, and therefore you you create a new league as the Premier League that did, UEFA or FIFA get to to be the the ruling body in terms of rules of the game and, and regulations of disciplinary matters, but the business organization of it is handed over to the clubs, directly to the clubs. There's no kind of negotiation process through the ECA with UEFA over the, over the structure of the Champions League and this kind of gradual bargaining position that we've seen for years and, and gradual changes to the Champions League as UEFA want to hold control over that. Look, it, it is, the UEFA made a statement saying that they they held back and they, they, they could potentially restart legal proceedings against those three remaining Super League clubs, Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus. But they also stated that basically they've gone back in terms of punishments and handling of the clubs to the position before the Super League was announced. So no... Um, current legal action against them and no penalties for getting involved in the Super League. The the nine Super League clubs who had apologised and um, were punished with what UEFA call goodwill contributions of 15 million euros each plus 5% of their European competition revenue until 2024. All of that's been stayed and, and basically set aside. Um, and the UEFA essentially had to accept that the a Madrid commercial court ruling that Barcelona, Madrid, Juventus and the other Super League clubs were entitled to try and organise a new competition um, what did have uh, jurisdiction over them. And that the Madrid court's reference of that to the European Court of Justice will need to be dealt with. So this is expected to go to the European Court of Justice next year. And the argument of the Super League clubs will be that UEFA has gone from a regulatory body into a, a revenue-making body, and, it, and it's not fair under European commercial law that an entity like UEFA or any entity has a commercial monopoly over a, a major area of, um, of European business practice, which is what football is. And I, you know, I think that argument through... The European Court of Justice is going to have a lot of ramifications for what happens next in European football and how we get this shift um, of broadcast digital revenues um, to the top clubs in the game. Because Real Madrid, Barcelona, 
Juventus are not giving up on this. They're not apologising. In fact, uh, um, the president of, of Juventus um, in his latest statement to shareholders outlined why he thought the Super League was a good idea and a, and a natural evolution um, for European and the world game. Um, and look, as you say, UEFA aren't in the strongest of positions in terms of football politics uh, and maintaining f absolute financial control over uh, European game as it is because they're fighting a war with FIFA um, over the biennial World Cup. And, uh, and they still have the threat from FIFA that the FIFA will take these top clubs and put them in a, in a club World Cup and be that regulator that the Super League clubs are saying they want um, while taking less of a percentage of the game and allowing the clubs to organise in a fashion that they feel suits their, their business practices. So I think there's been a perception that Super League was killed off um, a few months back by the, the protest of, the, of English supporters. I, I don't think this issue is dead by any means. It does seem no coincidence that, you know, the, the clubs who are pushing this, Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus, the, the three remaining dissenters, if you like, are heavily in debt, uh, partly due to the pandemic, partly due to mismanagement, depending on which club you're looking at, and they need the input of capital to uh, allow them to recover, if you like, from the um, the debt and also the, the mismanagement that has taken place with regards to the way that the clubs um, have performed financially. And it, there's a, an element of opportunism, perhaps, with regards to um, driving this. Look, Obviously, there has always been an element of opportunism to this. The, the Super League clubs ar argue that this is a more rational structure for the European game um, and that it can put it on a, on a fairer financial footing and a more sound financial footing that they'll redistribute income down the pyramid. Um, they, they, they basically say, well, the, the closed shop or the semi-closed shop nature of the Super League we proposed, that's something that was up for discussion. Uh, and we're prepared to have discussions with the rest of European football about the best structure. But football needs more regular games between its top clubs. And that's the way football is going to generate more revenue for everyone involved. Um, this is not down to the pandemic. Pandemic has, has accelerated the issues. And, uh, and made the need for capital uh, more intense. But the, the planning on this preceded the pandemic. This is a, this is a long-term project that these clubs have been working on. Um, and that, you know, there's still a lot of push for it amongst certain groups of owners. Um, it works for Barcelona, it works for Real Madrid, it works for Juventus, it works for the historical European clubs who do not like being in a structure where there are nation state clubs who can outspend them. Um, and they, they argue that the financial fair play rules are not strict enough to rein in the spending of those nation state clubs, which hurts their economics um, and is irrelevant to nation state clubs because they've got uh, an, a, basically an infinite supply of, of liquidity available to them. Um, and, you know, I see the sense in that argument. They're saying we need to structure a Super League where there are hard caps on spending in order to create a, a competitive balance, in order to prevent the, the system destroying itself because you have two, maybe more with Saudi Arabia attempting to get involved in, in owning a football club, two or three entities who it's not a business proposition anymore. It's simply spend the money required to outcompete everyone else and drive up the cost of salaries and 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 transfers to achieve that. And as a as a consequence of 
of that. So the, I think they have legitimate arguments in there. Um, and it, it, when you have American owners coupled to those historic European clubs who are used to American franchise systems where if you own one of the major baseball, American football or basketball franchises, you are guaranteed to earn money and uh, salary caps are part of the structure and uh, a, per, a big percentage of the revenue comes back to the owners each time. Um, the, the Glazers, for example, FSG, for all they've said, we listened to the protests, um, we realised we made a mistake, we're, we're going to cover the, the costs of the, the fines from UEFA. They, they're thinking about the business sense of the model has not changed. And if they see an opportunity to implement it, and if the European Court of Justice decides that actually the current setup of the game is not fair from a competition perspective because UEFA are actually a, a commercial entity taking large amounts of money out of football on their own behalf on a competition they organise themselves and do not allow any competition from other organising entities in, in the domain, that gives uh, you know, a legal basis on which to pursue these ideas of Super League and, and a different competitive structure in European football. Um, pardon the pun, but it's a bit rich <laughs> coming from clubs who have uh, over a billion euros in debt um, because of what they've spent and overspent beyond their means to be complaining that nation state clubs um, are in an advantageous position. Um, given that they've spent probably just as much, if not more, on their squads, uh, no, as you have pointed out that's repeatedly. Sim it's simply simply not the case. The, up until this summer, Manchester City had uh, the most expensive squad in terms of transfer fee cost ever assembled. Paris Saint-Germain had the second most expensive squad. It's only this summer um, because of the Glazers spending uh, in order to partly to deal with the ramifications of being involved in the Super League. Part of this was provoked by the supporter protest over, over their attempts to be involved in the Super League, that they've stepped ahead of Paris Saint-Germain. But at the same time, Paris Saint-Germain have, have hired several of the top performing footballers in world football, preventing them from going to other clubs by um, seriously outbidding rivals on, on wages. They've taken majority of their new signings as, as free transfers and avoided transfer fees. But uh, the, the basic principle of we've got more money and we're going to outspend you um, has has been demonstrated again in, in this transfer market. And it, you know it's a fact that Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain over the last 10 years have had more money to spend than any other club in European football. And and it and they've had that money because it comes from nation states who are not bothered about making a profit or not. Which brings us uh, very nicely to the situation at Old Trafford and Manchester United. We reported on the pod earlier this week that there were some uh, grumblings internally about uh, the way the team is performing. Since then, we have uh, gathered more detail about uh, what is actually happening behind the scenes at Old Trafford. And it appears that the Glazers uh, believe that they are not getting, and in quotes, value for money, considering the amount they have invested in new players and resources. Uh, for this season. Um, performances have not been what they've expected and uh, they feel that the team itself is inconsistent in the way that it achieves results and uh, against teams that they should be um, effectively securing wins with relative ease is not happening either, Duncan, something which you have highlighted as well. Um, 
Now, no one's saying Solskjaer's job is under immediate threat, but it certainly is the case that results like the one against Villarreal, which was achieved uh, by a stoppage time winner from Cristiano Ronaldo, um, when really uh, they could have been three or four goals uh, down by that point if it wasn't for David De Gea's uh, performance. It does look like, from the outside, a team who don't really have an identity. They, they seem to be a group of individuals rather than a team. And and Manchester United, as a, a club, has always been about the team ethic and that the sum of the parts uh, is more important than the individuals itself. But this doesn't seem to be a case of uh, concluding and conforming to that uh, tradition with regards to the way they play. Uh, now, I don't think the Glazers necessarily understand um, soccer, as uh, the Americans might say, uh, with, in that regard, but certainly they understand that they need to be winning uh, trophies in order for the club's value to be maintained and indeed increase. And I don't suppose you're going to be very surprised, Duncan, that, that people are starting to whisper and talk and say, are we going in the right direction? Well, I mean, you talked about the the, the sum of, the, of the, the, the team being more than the sum of the parts. At, at present, Manchester United is less than the sum of its individual parts. That's That's clear. Um, the quality of the squad they've had is unprecedented in the, the post-Ferguson era. There's an argument to be made. It's it's the highest quality squad they've ever had. Um, it's certainly performing at present in a way that is less than it should be performing. There has been one convincing victory this season against Leeds United. Um, there have been embarrassing defeats. Um, and the last two games at Old Trafford, they've been outplayed by Aston Villa and and completely outplayed by Villarreal. As you say, if it wasn't for David De Gea in that game and some less than precise finishing from the, the Spanish club, the, the match would probably have been dead at, at half time. Um, Solskjaer himself, and, and you don't hear this from a manager very often. Solskjaer himself, after the game, said, we had to throw caution to the wind and we got lucky in the end. Um, and he's right, they did get lucky in the end. I mean, there was even the element of Ronaldo's goal. There was a long stoppage after that goal um, for VAR to determine whether it was a, a legitimate goal or not. And as people pointed out, Ronaldo's shot looked like it may have come off Jesse Lingard's legs. It's it's difficult to see. The VAR determined that it hadn't, but Lingard was lying in front of the goalkeeper um, with his legs up um, just below the height of, of Ronaldo's shot, um, which wasn't from very far out and which, which really managed to get gloves on but couldn't keep out. So there, there was an argument that that was... Um, interfering with play. Uh, ironically, the, the the thing Solskjaer had been complaining about um, over Aston Villa's uh, winner at Old Trafford the previous weekend. Um, it, it's, I think this summer's recruitment, as we've said before, has been a double-edged sword for him because the excuses aren't available anymore. The expectation is this squad needs to deliver silverware and it needs realistically to de deliver important silverware. Glazers, as we've said, were forced into spending to this degree. They went and got Jaden Sancho, a player that Solskjaer had wanted for a long time at significant expense. They signed one of the best centre-backs in Europe, Rafael Varane, and then they brought Cristiano Ronaldo back to play up front. Um, Solskjaer said he cannot complain about what happened in the window. He was given what he wanted. Uh, you can't keep talking about the process and you can't keep talking about it'll happen eventually and we, we've got a pathway eventually uh, you have to deliver results even Gary Neville 
has has started to say that they need to deliver trophies. Not not in a very strong fashion because his his version of this was given the squad that Solskjaer's been handed, he needs to win a trophy either this year or next year. So another two years of uh, of having supreme resources before his his mate expected to win a trophy. But Solskjaer was asked about this that this week and and he he himself is still trying to avoid that commitment to um i've got enough quality of players that you can expect me to win something this season he was asked what neville had said his reply was if he says we need to win a trophy this season or next well um because of the backing i've got to say yes i have been backed and the progress and the process has worked well I have to say that the backing I've got seems to me that we're sticking to that plan, but we're in the results business. We're here to win. We're here to get up there. And clearly we've improved. He doesn't actually commit and say, yeah, I agree with Gary. Um, I need to get a trophy at least by the end of next season, which I mean, it's not really that hard a, a target to set yourself when, when you have one of the two most expensive squads ever assembled in world football when you're in charge of Manchester United, when you have those quality of individuals in front of him. One other thing he said this week, which I thought was interesting, um, talking about the quality of a squad, he, he said, with the squad, with the coaches I've got, I still believe we can improve and we will get that consistency. And that, that's, again, something I haven't heard from a football manager very often. You always hear managers talking about the quality of the squad and and what that allows them to do what um how that can help them improve you don't really say them talking about with the coaches i've got and and i think that highlights that Solskjaer has gone to the glazers and asked for more coaches to come in he got a set piece specialist coach this summer um and argued that by hiring coaches to delegate part of the job that he would be expected to do well to them, he can deliver the performance that's expected of Manchester United. Um, as yet, it's not happening. Or alternatively, he can place the blame for the lack of success on the fact that he doesn't have the quality or the number of coaches that he requires to do the job. It would be very amusing if, if at the end of the season, uh, if he hasn't won the Premier League, if he hasn't won the Champions League, if his argument is, um, I actually, I need to be allowed to hire some more coaches to improve the quality of the basic job that most people expect a manager to do in, in charge of a club of that dimension. I must admit, I agree with you. I've not, I don't think I've ever heard a head coach say that he, need, he needs more coaches more players yes because you know you, you ask any chief executive or chairman and they'll tell you that a manager's never going to be happy with the players he's got he'll always want something else but coaches is something completely different look um he, he he's not been shy in the past about saying he sees himself as a manager uh he sees himself partly in the, in the kind of ferguson mold where he runs the football side of the club and, and he said that um, other guys are better technically as coaches than than he is so it it fits with with what he's talked about before but yeah it's um when, when ferguson was doing it you knew that ferguson was was actually running the majority of stuff and had a great football brain and, and ferguson's kind of his tactic was to observe what was happening at his competitors. So first off, Arsene Wenger and the changes he made to English football by changing preparation and recruiting um, from France uh, and, and globally and copying that element. Then looking at what Jose Mourinho did when he came into the Premier League and won two uh, Premier League titles in a row terms of tactical preparation and and he, he went and hired Carlos Queiroz to to improve the quality of the team's defending um so he was adding to the skills he 
he already had and the extensive skills he already had in modernizing himself. You know, Solskjaer's a very experienced manager. He's been a manager for 10 years, um, but he's, he's still a young manager in relative terms and, and he, he shouldn't really be needing coaches to come in to modernize um, the fundamentals of, such as set-piece coaching. That, that's something that you would expect a manager of that caliber to have under his control and accomplished and, and patterns of play, being able to, to have different ways of, of attacking and building attacks against certain opponents rather than just, as it seems, and uh, you know, as people within the Manchester United camp will tell you if you talk to them, it's let's place an accumulation of very talented players on the pitch and, uh, and allow them to discover a way to break down opponents rather than coach them into a style that will work against multiple different opponents. Speaking of Manchester United, uh, in terms of recruitment, uh, we know that they were trying to uh, augment their central midfield during the summer window, which of course is now closed. But we understand that they do have uh, certainly an ambition to sign a defensive midfielder in the January window. And Duncan, you have information regarding a rivalry, perhaps, for one particular player between the two great rivals of English football, Liverpool and Man United, um, for the same player uh, to take him in January and if not, possibly next summer. Well, Yves Bissouma is one of the candidates within the, the, the Premier League at the moment because of the way he's been playing for, for well over a year now. Statistically, he comes out extremely well and, and statistical recruitment is very important to a lot of Premier League clubs. It's very important to Manchester United. It's very important to Liverpool. Um, you have Declan Rice, who we've talked about in this podcast, um, but is going to be a multiple of the of the transfer fee um, Basuma would command. Basuma's got into that accessible stage of his, his contract and that expires in 2023. A question can be put to Brighton as to whether they're prepared to cash in at this stage. I think it's become more complicated in terms of what fee Brighton would accept because they're, they're now cash rich, having achieved over £50 million in the, the sale of Ben White, so they can afford to uh, to take a stronger position over Pesuma. And um, ideally for Brighton, they would have both of those clubs and perhaps one of the other major clubs in, in English football bidding for the player. Um, from Pesuma's side, he wants to play Champions League football. He thought there was a good chance he would be leaving this summer. Um, again, I think White's uh, sale made that more difficult for him. Um, but he's also, I'm told, kind of preparing himself for that move in sharpening up his off-field behaviour. There have been some question marks about the, the way he handles himself away from football and also at the training ground. Um, some issues I've, I've been told about in terms of uh, sometimes being late for training and team meetings in the past. Um, but there, there now seems to be a focus from Basuma to get that side of, of being a footballer correct. In this, he's got the, the on-field stuff correct, but add that side to it because I think someone's had a, a word with him and said, if you want that move to the very top clubs, they do homework on how you, you behave and how you're going to fit into the camp. And if you can tick the box on off-field behaviour and, and training ground behaviour, as well as have having those performances on the field that they want, then um, the move will come. Very interesting. Basuma certainly has been impressive in terms of, uh, as you say, Duncan, his stats in terms of passing accuracy, interceptions, tackles completed, etc., etc., uh, and has started the season extremely well for Brighton Hove Albion, of course, who are only one point off the top of the Premier League. 
and Basuma's influence has certainly contributed very much so uh, to that particular um, position that they find themselves in, albeit as sixth, but it's joint second effectively with Liverpool being one point ahead. So um, you'd be a big loss to Brighton Hove Albion, but of course, as you say, with the sale of Ben White, uh, the club are more than in a position to uh, recruit uh, a replacement for him, as well as having players who are available who could step into his shoes or boots um, before uh, they even thought about buying a replacement. It being the second podcast of the week, we will conclude with the Donkey Award. And I'm pleased to say that Duncan himself has come up with the Boris Johnson Buying a Seat at the Table Award. This has taken its influence from the fact that a banker, uh, uh, Malcolm Offord, has uh, been given a lifetime peerage. Um, Strangely enough, or coincidentally, or however you want to put it, having donated £145,000 to the Tory party uh, and then received a post in the Ministry of for Scotland. So we thought we'd do the football version of this and I'm going to open up the uh, golden envelope and you'll hear it now. It's a bit tough this week. Oh, there we go. Right, so Duncan, is that, is that one of the golden envelopes that's used for uh, accessing peerages? <laughs> do they do golden envelopes for that? Do they? <laughs> Interesting. Um, it's certainly the one that we use, that's for sure. Um, now you're going to have to uh, pay attention here, Duncan, because this is this this could get quite complicated uh, on on a couple of these. Uh, I'm going to start with my own personal recollection, uh, and that is a visit to Chechnya uh, to open the new national stadium where I represented a couple of players who were playing an all-star team um, alongside Diego Maradona and uh, the likes. Uh, and uh, it was supposed to be being played against the... Um, champions of Chechnyan football. Um, that was the deal, if you like, uh, when we set off uh, for the capital. Uh, and uh, in fact, Rud Hullet was a coach at the time, actually. And then when we turned up, the game didn't, was delayed kickoff for three and a half hours because the Chechnyan president, uh, who is called Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, decided that he wanted he and his mates to play instead against the all-star team. So uh, <laughs> the game was delayed in its start. And then um, when uh, the all-star team, unsurprisingly, was already 2-0 up at half time, um, the Minister of Sport of Chechnya visited the away dressing room to say uh, that we had to lose the game uh, and reminded us that they had our passports and we wouldn't be getting out of the country unless <laughs> the game was the game was conceded. So that's so, the first so that, one. That's why you brought yourself on as a substitute in order to uh, no, ensure the game was I, lost. No, I uh, no, I subbed Diego Maradona off, as our listeners know. Um, that was that was my that was my tactic. Madonna off, uh, Magari on. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, the second one uh, is uh, Qatar, who have no history or indeed very little in the way of competitiveness in world football, but still managed to acquire uh, the right to host the World Cup in 2022 and even change it from a Summer World Cup to a Winter World Cup. So that was interesting um, in terms of buying yourself a place at the table. And the third uh, uh, contestant, if you like, 
uh, for this particular award uh, goes to Ronnie Brunswijk, who is a former commando and bodyguard, and he uh, earned the nickname of Suriname's Robin Hood, having been convicted of robbing a bank and giving money to local people. He's wanted by Interpol, uh, who want to uh, arrest him for two prison sentences. However, Brunswijk uh, managed to uh, compete in a game where at age 60, he started with his son Damien, uh, a former under-20 international, uh, and one of 50 children he has reportedly fathered. And of course, that's to be fair, that's a great score right there, Duncan. If he's fathered 50, 50 kids. Um, and uh, yeah, completed uh, a bit of a, an ambition for himself by uh, starting with his son in a game and uh, effectively uh, buying his way into playing uh, in that particular match and then handing out money after the game as well. Um, so, uh, I have to say, Duncan, that that is quite an incredible story. And uh, those of you who haven't heard or read of it, then please do Google it and or whatever and uh, have a look at it. So we've got uh, three contenders, Duncan. Uh, who would be the one you think is deserved of this week's donkey? Well, McGarry and Mar- Maradona at uh, gunpoint in Chechnya's uh Quite a good one, and I, I don't know if you want to tell us. Quite how, a good one. Excuse me. How much money was spent <laughs> on recruiting the All Stars team to, to how, go and How go could and, you? How could you beat that? Maradona, McGarry, and Gunpoint, and a Chechnyan radical terrorist president. Um, well, buying an entire World Cup, I think, beats that. Um, which, of course, <laughs> of course, Qatar have done and uh, football awaits the, the consequences. Well, it's not a, not the that. first time not the first time a World Cup's been bought. Um yeah, but not with that not with that scale and and as you point out, um into a, a, a place with no real history in the sport and where the, the, the tournament has to be moved to the middle of uh, the European winter in order to to get it played. Uh, with all the consequences and ramifications that has for the domestic calendar. But I I think you're right. I think in this case, um, the, the vice president of Suriname, Ronnie Brunswick, um, and his team, which I think is called Inter Muengo Tapo, um, which mm. is actually um, Brunswick's birthplace and apparently has a, a population of 579, um, playing in remarkably the round of 16 of the CONCACAF League. Are you serious? They have a, they have a population of 569? 579 in the 2012 census, apparently. Unbelievable. Unless, unless someone's been messing around with Wikipedia, which is eminently possible it, in those circumstances. But it, it's, it sounds like Dunning on the Wold, who have one voter, a small dachshund called Colin, and three, chil- and, uh, three sheep. <laughs> and a CONCACAF league team. <laughs> uh yeah so played played 54 minutes um the team lost 6-0 um and he then managed to have himself filmed on social media handing out $100 notes to the opposition players after the match which um he explained was a, a token of his gratitude because they hadn't been able to hold any matches uh, in Suriname uh, because of covid for almost a year and a half and he was just grateful that Olympia were prepared to come to Suriname uh, and play the the match against his team. CONCACAF weren't very impressed. They uh, saw the the social media footage, kicked both teams out of the competition, um, but he he did manage to get himself uh, that, uh, by himself, that position of being, I think, the oldest player to play a professional competitive football match well I have to say the very same sports minister in Chechnya who um, was um, making these remarks at half time in the the game uh, then turned up at the airport later well actually in the early hours of the morning 
because uh, the game was delayed. The flight had back to Geneva had to be delayed uh, because of um, the the pilot wasn't allowed to fly um, until around five in the morning. I seem to remember, and the sportsman so came round and handed out Frank Muller watches to all of the players uh, in the All Star team, uh, worth about forty grand a piece. <laughs> so there you go. Um, I'm I'm certain there was no corruption involved. What what was <laughs> what was the the final score? Uh, all the All Stars won four two, but they obviously decided to give us our passports back anyway. <laughs> they just held on to your pilot for a while. <laughs> yeah, well at least they gave at least they gave us Frank Miller watches. <laughs> oh, the tales we can tell. And we do, because of course this has been the news before it becomes news. Uh, and please do engage with us on our social media platforms. We are at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Duncan's at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. Uh, you can find us on YouTube as well. Just search Transfer Window Podcast. We will be back next week, and until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.